0: The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Coming up this week, we've just published a 300th edition of the Art Newspaper, and I talk to its founding editor, Anna Summers-Cox, about the paper's past, present and future. But first this week, Martin Kemp, Professor Emeritus of the History of Art at Trinity College, Oxford, is one of the world's leading experts in the work of Leonardo da Vinci. His new book, Living with Leonardo, 50 Years of Sanity and Insanity in the Art World and Beyond, has just been published, and the art newspaper's Martin Bailey spoke to him about it.
1: Uh, well, for any UK arts journalist, um, you're Mr Leonardo, um, and uh, reading Living with Leonardo, your new book, book, I realised quite how many years we've been in touch. Uh, but when we've been in contact with each other, uh, you've been understandably a bit cautious and discreet. And it's fascinating to read the book and to get a franker account of some of the incidents which um, have occurred. And I wanted to begin by asking about two paintings which you've authenticated. One of them, the Bella Principesa, Um I've never been entirely convinced about the arguments, partly because of the way the painting was introduced in the art world and partly because it uh, has been rejected by other specialists um, who are very well regarded. Uh, The other painting, the Salvador Mundi, we'll go into in a moment. But on the Bella Principessa, um, are you still convinced that it's authentic?
2: I think it's become an open and shut case, knowing what we do about its origins, and uh, when I wrote the initial book in English we didn't know where it came from. It had come from nowhere. It had no provenance. Uh, So we were looking then at issues of style, issues of technical analysis, and at the Sforza court portraits, how the women in the court were portrayed, and this was completely consistent with it in presentation and hairstyle and so on. And then after that, uh, a scholar, American scholar, called David Wright, Professor Wright, wrote saying, have you thought of the origins of this portrait on vellum? Well, it's on vellum, it's not. And uh, David Wright said, have you thought about this uh, possibly coming from the book in Warsaw? And I said, I hadn't. But uh, National Geographic were making a TV programme around the scientific examination. But they fixed up via a grant for expeditions, which I thought was rather nice. <laughs> Thinking, you know, It's like going off in a pith helmet to Africa or something. Anyway, we got an exp- expedition grant uh, to go to Warsaw to look at the book. And when you looked at the book, you can see from the way it's bound that at least one and a half, maybe two pages had been cut out of the Vellum book, presumably when it was being bound. And that is consistent with where the portrait would be in that particular book. Why has
1: this not been accepted by the other Leonardo specialists? The the story of acceptance is interesting. It has been accepted
2: by quite a number, but but not by others. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that the question of something becoming accepted is partly a matter of visual evidence, partly a matter of historical evidence, but it's also hugely coloured by issues of ownership and presentation. And this particular um, work was put into the press in a rather sensational way before the research had really whose been fault,
1: done. Whose fault was that, and why was it presented in that way?
2: Uh, the owner, who is in some ways very generous, uh, got over enthusiastic. And really, you know, if you've if you got something like that, you can imagine somebody saying, Well, you know, I really have to get it out. So at various points, there were what I call premature ejaculations, there were things that came out before they were thought through, before they were consistent. And I would have much preferred to produce all the evidence as we had it then in one go. And you can alienate people if a scholar is phoned up by the New York Times and they say there's this wonderful new Leonardo and they've got a pretty rubbish uh, uh, reproduction of it and the owner has been maligning those scholars who haven't looked at it and reject it, then that sets people against it.
1: Well, w- w- one of the um, criticisms about the attribution of the Bella Principesa is the pose of the woman. Um, how would you respond to that?
2: If you look at how the North Italian court ladies, and they are ladies, were uh, portrayed up until after 1500, they're in profile. This is decorous. You wouldn't portray a court lady in a freestyle way. Uh, she wouldn't look at you. The Leonardo portraits that do naughty things with their eyes, the portrait of Ludovico's two mistresses, that's quite different. They're a different class of women. And it is de rigueur that women at that stage in the North Italian courts were portrayed in profile. They wouldn't look at you, they wouldn't smile. And if we look what Leonardo does when he leaves Milan, he goes, visits Isabella d'Este in Mantua, And he clearly wants to free up the portrait And the torso of Isabella turns sideways, but it's still profile. Um, Later portraits of Isabella are not in profile, but they're later ones, so it's axiomatic you do that. And that criticism doesn't understand that Leonardo, even Leonardo, is constrained by what is proper at the time in that genre. And we can look at the Salvatamundi in that light as well. Some people have said, oh, it's a very dull, conventional subject. But if you're doing a Salvatamundi, you do a Salvatamundi. It has to be frontal. It has to look at you. It has to bless. And it has to have a sphere. And Leonardo is a maker of pictures. And he's making things for patrons. He's making saleable works or commissioned works. So even Leonardo doesn't have a free hand. He has to work within parameters.
1: Well, there's an interesting comparison here with the South Mundi painting. So let's go on to that. And that was actually presented to the world um, in a rather sophisticated way. Um, and there was a lot of behind-the-scenes examination by the scholars. Um, and then it ended up on display at the National Gallery in London, which was uh, obviously gave it a huge sort of cachet. Um, I was interested in the book that um, uh, you reproduced the very poor early black-and-white photograph of the painting before it was restored in the early 20th century, and you actually described it uh, as an image of a drug-crazed hippie. Um, so at that point, um, uh, um, many some years ago, you obviously reject it. Uh, what is your present position, and do you accept that it's entirely from Leonardo's hand? Most of
2: what we see speaks of Leonardo. The difficulty is that some of the areas still with paint surviving have been quite abraded. So, it's very difficult to say, well, that is absolutely Leonardo. But those areas are confined to the drapery and particularly to the interlace work, It's very complex work, knot work, which you may well get assistance to do. You know, Leonardo would do a passage of it and say, that's how you do it. It goes on over there, under there, and how the threads work. And somebody could go on and do it. But I would say, of what I can see, the huge majority of it, I don't want to turn it into a percentage, but the huge majority of it is utterly consistent with Leonardo. Yes. And it's consistent in style and also the way he manipulates the subject matter. So it's not just a question of a connoisseurly or judgment by eye, as I prefer to call it, coming in and saying, this is Leonardo, I can tell. But there's a lot of very subtle manipulation of that subject for a particular kind of content.
1: And what about the price, $450 million? Did this price surprise you, and is the painting worth it?
2: On the night of the sale, uh, it was obviously night in in England, and I knew that there was a guarantee on the painting of $100 million. Somebody had backed that, that price and I think that's how they prized it out of uh, Rybolov left, that they basically said well we've got a guaranteed price for this as he wasn't, I think, intending to sell it initially and I thought, since the Rybolov left paintings have been selling for much less than that he'd paid Bouvier for them the king of the freeports I thought, this is going to struggle to get much above 100, 100 million, and I thought it would probably get to 110 million, so I went to bed <laughs> I thought, I'm just not I can do better things and yeah, listen to. Maybe you should have stayed up. <laughs> <time>. <laughs> well, at two o'clock in the morning, my phone started ringing, and I opened my emails, and they were going Bing, 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 and all hell broke loose. And um, I then spent. Judd, my PA came round, and we then spent the next twenty-four hours doing the round of the news studios, and it was completely crazy. Uh, and breakfast and lunch disappeared somewhere or other, and it was. Absolutely astonishing. And what it shows is that Leonardo, and it's one reason I wrote the book, um, is of a different league, different league than Michelangelo from any of the big figures from Shakespeare, that he, like them, is subject to enormous myths and terrific public interest. But the degree to which Leonardo evokes that is, I think, completely extraordinary. So I don't think this is a world record price for a painting in the normal market. It's a, it's a world record price for a Leonardo, which is a completely separate thing from from anything else. It, it, no, it's just astonishing.
1: Yeah. yeah. And the final uh, example of um, attribution I wanted to ask you about was the drawing of the Madonna of the Christ Child and Saint Anne, which um, you exhibited in 1992 in an exhibition in Edinburgh and argued that it was, uh, if I understand correctly, it was probably an autograph drawing reworked by another hand. And this drawing later became the subject of a bitter law case between two dealers, Simon Dickinson and Daniela Luxembourg. What is your view now of the drawing and its status? Is it it a Leonardo?
2: It's a drawing which I've had more difficulty with than any other... The thing on the edge of Leonardo, as it were. Uh, La Bella Principessa, the portrait of Bianca Sforza, the Salvatore Mundi. I've resolved that in my own mind, not to the point where I couldn't be convinced otherwise, but I'm comfortable uh, with saying these are by Leonardo. In that case, I never got to that point. It was always uneasy. In the Edinburgh exhibition, and this was quite a uh, a stiff test for the drawing, it it was there with other, other Leonardo drawings and having seen it individually I thought this is actually pretty interesting, it's very well drawn it's got some of the characteristics which we would want for a Leonardo drawing of that particular composition and it reflects the image described by Vasari uh, but when it was on the exhibition I thought it doesn't really fit it doesn't, and I tried to make it a later drawing by Leonardo and Ultimately, I say in the book, slightly cautiously, if I was now asked to start, I would ask by starting, is it a forgery?
1: Well, I was wanting to ask how often you get approached by people who think they have Leonardo paintings or drawings. Um, In a typical year, how many people, how many approaches would you get? And how many serious contenders have you had in your career?
2: I haven't counted, but my impression would be I get probably about 20 a year, and these range from things which are close, close to Leonardo, i.e. pupils' work or followers' works, to bizarre things. The One time I was sent a perfectly respectable Rococo engraving of a domestic scene, and I looked it up and I said, this is a Rococo engraving, I could even tell them who it's by and what painting it was based on. And the reply came back, ah, well, Leonardo was a genius. He invented a way of painting like a late 18th century engraving. So those are the crazy ends of it. And the
1: serious contenders, how many have you had of them? Uh,
2: Really serious contenders, about three.
1: Uh, Well, in the book, you talk about being approached by Leonardo Lunis. Um, how do you feel about the process of authentication as an expert do you enjoy the position of being approached by these people uh, and how do you uh, deal with it now because I can see that it can be quite time consuming and if there have only been three serious contenders in your lifetime not very productive
2: the first thing I say it's a privilege to deal with somebody in whom there is enormous public interest If you're working on Leonardo writing about a no d says who uh, which is a great advantage, and it's it's a privilege to have that public access, but it has become increasingly tiresome. And I actually now have a post on my website saying that I don't do opinions. And what was happening was I was getting a lot of abuse. And I'd been stalked. I was stalked to a conference in The Hague the man spent the whole time in that conference trotting round the conference after me, and I thought I needn't have anything to do with this. If somebody sells me, sends me something which is really impressive, then I will, I will obviously switch into a different mode of operation. But uh, uh, re- reluctantly, I pulled out. I should say on the question of authentication, I don't authenticate works in that sense that I associate that with certificating paintings, writing saying this is definitely by Leonardo I research things that are worth researching so I was sent the Bella Principessa, the portrait of Bianca Sforza and I thought ah, this is actually worth researching and my view is the object is not to blame for who owns it mm-hmm. uh, that if it's worth researching it doesn't matter if it's owned by the National Gallery or if it's owned by a crook uh, and I'm not saying any of the Leonardo's are owned by crooks I have to say but uh, I will do a historical job on it no differently than if it's in the National Gallery, for instance.
1: Fine. Well, we've talked quite a bit about um, authentication. I wanted to go on to ask about exhibitions. There's quite an interesting chapter in your book where you sort of provide a behind-the-scenes account of how exhibitions are organised. Um, and can you give some examples of Um, things you've come across in exhibitions you've curated which might surprise visitors because visitors to exhibitions just see the finished product and they don't necessarily know what goes on behind the scenes. Um, Can you spill a few secrets for us?
2: There's a range of things that go on. One of them, obviously, is that the lenders expect the picture to be labelled and described and catalogued as um, they wish it to be. Of course, they they hold the whip hand. If so, they couldn't withdraw the loan in that, that case. So you tiptoe around one or two of these things. One of them, at of the Armwinder, I, uh, I tiptoed round because the owner was insisting it was uh, more uh, autographed Leonardo than it is. It's, ve- it's very, very Leonardo, but there's lots of studio work in it. Um, yeah, but there are also cases where works get diplomatically redated so they can fall within the embrace of an exhibition. There's a lot of trading goes on, horse trading of, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Uh, um,
1: In terms of um, how pictures are presented at exhibitions to satisfy the lenders, you mentioned an example at the National Gallery exhibition on Leonardo, which was a real blockbuster. Can you tell us what the example was?
2: Well, some very quirky things go on, and I can give you perhaps it's the, the prime example of the so-called Madonna Lita, uh, which is in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, which they believe absolutely is Leonardo. And the other objects in that exhibition are all catalogued within the house. They're all Luke Sison or people within the gallery or people employed by the gallery. So it, it's consistent in that sense. In this case, we suddenly find a catalogue entry by Tatiana Custodieva, who is in charge of the painting in St. Petersburg. The general sense of that picture across Leonardo's scholarship, and it's relatively uniform, is that it's based upon a Leonardo design. There's an account by Leonardo himself of a Madonna in profile, but the actual execution is studio execution, and it's Boltraffio. Boltraffio has a very characteristic style, it's very polished, very accomplished, and it absolutely says Boltraffio, and I think that would be accepted by most people. The Hermitage want it to be Leonardo all the way through. And Tatiana Custodieva, who's a very good scholar, I have to say, writes it up with the stronger cases you can have for it being by Leonardo, as a in the in the catalogue, and is inconsistent with the drawings and the drawings for it are published in the catalogue as by Boltraffio.
1: So are you saying that the National Gallery and its, and its respected cura- curator, Luke Sison, believed that it was not Leonardo, but it was exhibited and labelled as a Leonardo in order to satisfy the Hermitage? Is that what you're saying?
2: I'm saying there are negotiations in which they needed this picture, because it's an important picture, it's yes. from the Milanese period, and the conditions for getting it were that Tatiana Kostolieva would catalogue it i'm not going beyond that, but they would know that you know she had views of the picture which were not consistent with those of the curator of the exhibition but it's a, she's got well founded scholarly views of it, which most people would disagree with but it, it clearly is quite conscious that they were willing to accede to that picture being catalogued by somebody outside the group of cataloguers
1: but that that is disturbing that the national gallery a a highly respected institution put essentially puts its name um, to um, the attribution of a picture when its own curators are not convinced of that attribution is that not worrying
2: it is a concern, but you can justify it by saying there is a difference of scholarly opinion about this, and there is a range of opinions. But uh, for the members of the public, it is it would be puzzling if anyone sat down to read the catalogue in, in the way in which um, a specialist might. You would say, well, this is puzzling. You know, Why is it that Leonardo is doing something based upon a, a pupil's drawing for draperies?
1: Loans of Leonardo paintings must be almost the most difficult that you could possibly um, try and achieve and I say that because there are so few Leonardo paintings they're also uh, well regarded by the public and, gall- and visitors want to see them in the galleries so um, owners, ga- owners are reluctant to lend um, how does one borrow a Leonardo and what sort of um, offerings are made by galleries who are successful in borrowing Leonardo's
2: Boring a Leonardo is dependent upon the status of the gallery and what kind of gallery it is. Um, The two first Leonardo exhibitions I did were both in what the Germans would call a Kunsthalle. That's to say they are spaces that are exhibiting arts, but they have no permanent collection. So in that case, we had to persuade on the basis of persuasion uh, that uh, the owner would lend. We had nothing to offer back. And the Hayward Gallery uh, certainly wasn't going to pay enormous fees to people to to borrow things. So in that case, we were exhibiting drawings, and we got absolutely remarkable cooperation. The first one in the Hayward Gallery, Janie Roberts, who was the the Honourable Mrs. Jane Roberts, now uh, a dame, was a co-curator and this obviously helped a lot getting the the key drawings from Windsor once you've got that cadre of drawings then you can borrow other things we can say well your drawing is to join this spectacular uh, drawing or group of drawings from Windsor Um, if you're a gallery like the National Gallery British Museum which I was a trustee of then the curators have a kind of mutual society uh, that uh, they lend to each other's exhibitions, or they recommend the loans. They, of course, have to be approved by the trustee or the board, the director, and so on. Nonetheless, there's a lot of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And some pretty remarkable things happen. For instance, the uh, National Gallery cartoon, the full-scale drawing for the Virgin Child, St Anne and St John, um, which is in, it's been shot amongst other things, so it's in quite a fragile state, and it's it's an old drawing mounted on linen, so it's very fragile. I inquired about borrowing that for the Hayward Gallery show. We also talked about doing an exhibition of Leonardo at the Royal Academy, and that was owned by the Royal Academy. It was sold by the Royal Academy to raise money. And I was told it was too fragile to move even across London. And then it appears in the Louvre exhibition,
1: so how did the Louvre manage to get it?
2: The Louvre got it because there was a lot of horse trading between the Louvre and the National Gallery about their mutual exhibitions. The Louvre was doing the one on the St Anne exhibitions. The National Gallery wanted the Louvre Virgin of the Rocks, the first version of the Virgin of the Rocks, to put beside their version. So it's not they don't sit down and do a cynical trade-off, but there is an unspoken sense that... If the Louvre is prepared to loan this unloanable thing, i.e. the first version of The Virgin of the Rocks, which again isn't in good condition, then the Louvre can legitimately ask for the National Gallery's cartoon of the, of the St Anne.
1: Um, next year is the 500th anniversary of Leonardo's death, and there are a whole series of exhibitions which are being organised across the world to mark the event. Are you involved in curating any of these exhibitions or have you rather moved off curating?
2: I've not moved off curating directly, but uh, in this case I will probably get wheeled out to write odd essays and do the normal kind of things. But I'm actually interested, and as I get older I become more and more irresponsible, of doing other things with Leonardo. And I'm talking about dance, I'm talking about music, and doing something which moves on what I do with Leonardo into other imaginative realms. But
1: tell us in brief what the other um, schemes you're involved in.
2: Well, whether they come off or not, uh, another matter, but um, I'm talking to Robert Hollingworth of the very remarkable group that play Renaissance Baroque music and modern music, E Fagiolini, and we're talking about a CD of music related to Leonardo, which would then become a series of concerts, I'm talking to Oxford Philharmonic Orchestra about centering something on Leonardo's Paragone. That's to say we would look at pictures which become very musical and we'd look at music that becomes very pictorial, regardless of period. So something like Mussolski's pictures of an exhibition. So that's quite a free springing off, but from a, a sense of how... Leonardo thought about painting relating to music, which for him was the toughest competitor amongst the arts for his beloved art of painting. I'm talking to Shibona jai Singh, the the great choreographer, and I've showed her a series of what I call Leonardo penmen, these these little drawings of figures pushing, pulling, turning, twisting, etc. And she's very interested in the torsions of a body and the limits of bodies as expressive vehicles. Um, so she's proposing to start in Florence something with three dancers looking at Leonardo's notions of human music, the biomechanics of it, and the emotions of it.
1: Yeah. And finally, how has your view of Leonardo changed over this period? That may be difficult to summarise, but um, what, are the, what, what are the major changes in how you've perceived uh, Leonardo as an artist and a scientist?
2: The core of what I was looking for in Leonardo when I first started looking at the anatomies I got a sense that he is not a diverse figure although we can see he does military engineering he does optics, he does physics he does uh, anatomy etc etc and it looks very diverse but there is, a, there is a core of common ideas about how nature works about how nature is structured, about the geometry, about the science of nature and this goes into the engineering, it goes into the painting. So that core has served me fairly well. I would say if anything's changed it's a sense of, if anything increasing awe at what he does, that far from what he, he does seeming to become more routine or more easily understandable. And I think that's remarkable really, that uh, uh I, the more I look at Leonardo and the more I look at things I thought I knew about, I'm doing, for instance, with an Italian colleague, in addition of Bill Gates's Codex, the Codex Leicester, which is 70,000 70, words of the most difficult stuff you'd ever hope not to deal with. And I knew that pretty well. You know, I'd looked at it for other studies. And looking at it again, it just appeared to be absolutely extraordinary in its, its range and depth of thought, its ability verbally and visually to express how the world works. And more and more I just thought, wow, this is, this is unbelievably good.
1: Oh, thank you
0: very much. Uh,
2: Martin, it's been a pleasure.
0: Living with Leonardo is out now and published by Thames & Hudson. Now, the 300th edition of The Art Newspaper is just out. The paper was first published in 1990 and it's seen enormous changes in the art world since then. I spoke to its founding editor, now chair of The Art Newspaper, Anna Summers-Cox. Anna, it's the 300th edition of The Art Newspaper. Can you describe why you wanted to start The Art Newspaper in the first place?
3: I wanted to start it because at the time I was the editor-in-chief of Apollo magazine and I realised that There wasn't such a thing as a general reader for bits of art history. And also that art history, like the sciences, had fragmented into different specialisations. So there was old mass drawings, there was prints, there was medievalists and so on. And suddenly this newspaper, an Italian, arrived on my desk called Giornale dell'Arte, which had been founded in 1983 by an Italian called Umberto Alemandi. And I suddenly saw this Incredible way of pulling the art world together. What he had done, he had said, Well, it's this it's all art. It's art as happening in the world. And he embraces archaeology, it embraces the market. Um it's old art, new art, it's not about any single kind of art, it's the visual arts and things relating to the culture pertaining to the visual arts, including architecture to some extent, as they happen in the world and as the world affects them. So um I ended up being asked to launch uh, uh, the art newspaper on the model of the Giornale de l'arte but with different kinds of stories in it.
0: So so what was the art world like in 1990?
3: Uh, It was much smaller because the market hadn't extended it to the general public in the same way. There were smaller numbers of people going to the museums. Uh, old art, in other words, art before 1900, played a much, much bigger role. Contemporary art was rather specialised.
0: That's right. And so would you say that, to a certain extent, the art world is now unrecognisable from the days when you started the Art Newspaper, or is it just what it was, but expanded exponentially?
3: No, the art world has sort of concerted forward. There's been a huge loss of knowledge and interest in art before 1900 in fact the professor of art history at Yale was lamenting there's a great lack of knowledge of art before 1945 Um, it's partly the way in which history is being taught or not taught Um, it's partly because the huge influence of the market has made the contemporary seem much sexier and I think we've genuinely lived through a change of of epoch for example in uh, 1990 when I started French furniture was still 18th century French furniture was still what rich people aspired to live with well that isn't the case anymore unless you have a very very grand piece of French royal furniture which will sell for a lot of money you know perfectly decent 18th century French armchairs are really rather cheap now.
0: So one of the big factors in that is this avalanche of money that's come into the art world from lots of different sources in a way one of the great idiosyncratic elements of the art newspaper is that it's very good at following the money and and finding out more about that money isn't it so so in a sense you've been tracking those developments very carefully over those 28 years
3: I always thought it was very important to look at the art market uh, but without it influencing the rest of what we wrote about there was I regret to say quite a lot of sleazy art market writing um, at the time it still goes on a bit uh, with magazines where you know features will be written by uh, by by about artists who are being you know who are being uh, who advertised in the same magazine that was very important to keep the two things separate but of course the art market is incredibly important it's one of the main movers it's one of the reasons where why things surface i'm fascinated by how things surface on the art market was tell the journalists notice what's happening, what you see um but um I think it's not coincidental that we have had the period of neoliberalism which has generated huge quantities of money, cash that does not equate to actual real tangible wealth and this money has been rushing around trying to find places to put itself and we've had property booms Um, and art has become one of those things in which people are speculating now. um, Until the late 1990s there was no data on contemporary art uh, really, contemporary art uh, being sold at auction because it wasn 't being sold at auction moment the auctions started, then you started to get prices and you could start having art indexes. Once you have art indexes, you can start pretending that you 're dealing with a market that is like the market for shares.
0: would you say that the interest in contemporary art is damaging the scholarship of work before one thousand nine hundred and forty five as the Yale professor suggested.
3: I think it's sucking a lot of energy out of um, earlier research because uh, large quantities of money are useful up to a point, but then they begin to sort of flatten out uh, the light and the shade. Um, I don't know how to, how to put it exactly. Uh, it doesn't seem so sexy to go somewhere looking at art that isn't worth a, you know, a very large sum of money. Uh, so, for example, you know, perfectly decent Hungarian artists. Nobody studies them outside Hungary because there's basically no market for them. This has always been slightly the case. But you didn't study artists from countries you thought were small countries far away. But but um, I think that has dampened down curiosity. Uh, it has certainly created a crisis in universities where um, every, all, the, all the people are applying to study later art and not the earlier art.
0: How has the, the art newspapers reporting been affected by global events, wars such as the Gulf, first Gulf War and the second Gulf War, the events of September, September the 11th for instance?
3: I was very struck um, because shortly after we started our newspaper, uh, we had the first Gulf War and one of the American generals said that um, if need be they would bomb Iraq until it was like uh, a, a box of baby powder. And I thought, you can't do that. This is, this is, um, this is um, uh, the cradle of our civilization, Ur, Sumer and so on. Uh, so we went to ask the Pentagon whether they were aware of this fact and whether they'd given instructions uh, and we discovered they hadn't. And this was very striking because in the Second World War, uh, the troops were given very clear instructions about which were the monuments and which places had to be avoided and so on. So we reported on that, and um, I wrote a headline, which was Armageddon over Eden, because the Garden of Eden was thought to be in southern Mesopotamia, in other words, southern Iraq. Uh, then uh, September 11th, um, a terrible, terrible moment, um, and um, but something that suddenly kindled people's interest in the Islamic world and the Middle East and um, quite a lot of the interest in the Middle East derives from that.
0: And I suppose our reporting in the Middle East since then has been sort of on the one hand a sort of catalogue of tragedies of lost heritage and on the other hand this burgeoning market, burgeoning uh, museums, a burgeoning world of art in the Middle East, isn't it?
3: What one has seen is the emphasis in the Middle East has moved from what are called the old Arab countries, you know, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, as they have gone down one by one, as it were, and the rise of the Gulf with all its wealth and its increased sophistication, its desire to have museums, the Louvre Abu Dhabi project, you know, the art fairs, the art auctions, which have been successful, um, sanctions against Iran, against Iran which means that Iranian buyers have been uh, been buying through Dubai because the UAE has not um, been part of the sanction system so you have to look at the art market in a very broad way and now the fascinating um, phenomenon of Saudi Arabia and the young crown prince Mohammed bin Salem, deliberately putting forward the art world uh, in order to uh, encourage the young, young, very young population, and because it is actually a very good, rather, rather hip sort of conceptual art world that has been developed quite spontaneously there through contact with the internet. Um, and now it, and it's going to have a lot of royal patronage, and we hope that that doesn't mess it up.
0: Indeed. Uh, to what extent would you say the art newspaper is a journal of record, and to what extent would you also say it's a sort of campaigning newspaper?
3: Well, I, I, I define a journal of record as something where the news in it is, can, is as reliable as news can be, given that it has to be written in a short time. Uh, I don't think we, we can aim to cover absolutely everything. Uh, the, um, we have tried to, to make it very, very, very full of news, but that role is rather taken on my way uh, the website, which is a continual flow of news. Sometimes I'm British, I call it the diary of news. <laughs> um, um so I think that the paper will, like most papers become more uh, uh, a place where you where you reflect on things that have happened
0: indeed but one of the things that's striking about the art newspaper is that the newspaper is still very much a thriving part of what we do in a world where, for instance, with national newspapers in Britain, you can just see them dwindling in terms of their importance. Do you see that as continuing in the future, or do you see that the art newspaper may perhaps uh, follow the same fate as those? I,
3: I don't think it will, I, because I think, being monthly, people are happier to uh, to have an actual product which is solid in their hands. Um, you can't, you can't consult the Guardian monthly news. It would, you never where, it, never know where it was going to stop. At least when you have a newspaper or indeed need a book, you know there's page one and there's page there's the last page. You know what the editors have decided that you they think you ought to know.
0: What do you see as the sort of continual matters of concern within the art world?
3: I think that people are only just now beginning to realise that the fact that a work of art is relatively recent, you know, perhaps theoretically 30 years old, doesn't guarantee that it's authentic. On the contrary, quite a lot of recent art is actually incredibly easy to fake. And so the question of fakes is going to become key. That could undermine the speculative market drastically. Um, there's a second point, which is that a lot of contemporary art is incredibly poorly made because facture has not been part of the philosophy and so one's going to have massive massive conservation problems And for example a lot of photographic works are already fading, Um, these are limited editions in theory you should not be able to print anymore and then there is a greater underlying problem which derives precisely from this huge influx of money into the art world which may take some of the glory of art. There's been huge respect for art for over a 100 years. It's been considered a kind of God's substitute. But if it becomes too close to mammon, then people may begin to feel a slight aversion. You already have some rather enlightened donors who have been in the contemporary art world, like Agnes Gund, selling their works of art in order to put their money into uh other projects such as helping defend young black uh blacks who've been accused and who are not being well defended in the courts i think this may well become a tendency now this may be a good thing for the world but it isn't going to be so great for the art world
0: now you've you've got to edition 300 but you are now going to retire can you tell us what you're going to do
3: (laughs) um I, some of what I'm going to do is completely different, and I, I don't want to tell anybody. Um, but I would like to do some very long form journalism. For example, uh, the effects uh, of sea level rise on the whole of northeast Italy, not just Venice. Uh, the scientists know what's going to happen, but don't know how to explain it. And most journalists don't have the time to go into it in great depth. But I think that there are some topics like that that really need to be tackled.
0: Anna? Thank you very much.
3: Thank you for asking me about 300 issues of The Art Newspaper.
0: The Art Newspaper 300th edition is out now and you can subscribe to The Newspaper online at theartnewspaper.com And that's all for this podcast. You can tell us what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper and you can also see our updates on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official.